how did so the merchandising game the thing i don't i don't have sight of is the evolution of it and we alluded to earlier the distribution model change because <clears throat> it migrated from mum and dad's shops over into more contemporary hmb types more like hot topic types but that's not the question but it's the framework how did Nickelback and Slipknot change the game for you guys in the merch world then? Was it, is it just volume or is it there's some innovation here? You know, my opinion uh, is twofold on it. Okay. Slipknot was both volume and innovation. Nickelback was volume, pure volume. Yeah. You know, in in Slipknot's case, you know, I went out to the ranch in Malibu where they were recording the first record with Monty in 1998. And I sat down. We hadn't signed the merch deal yet. And Clown, Sean, loves to tell this story. And I sat down with him on a bench outside, and he told me, the whole vision of Slipknot. He told me, we're going to create these jumpsuits. Our fans are going to be are called maggots. They're going to all wear these orange jumpsuits. And I'm going to tell them to stand the fuck up and sit the fuck down. And he's going through this. And I'm sitting there thinking, this guy is insane. This is like Jim Jones and the Kool-Aid. And, and Sean loves this because Sean and I became really good friends and the clown will tell you, he's like, when I met Felix, he was a non-believer. And, and it's true. I thought he was fucking crazy. And, and he and I have gone to so many retailer meetings from Spencer Gifts to Hot Topic. I mean, tons of them where we've sat down with retailers to help sell Slipknot. And he loves telling the stories like Felix was a non-believer. And then I get to speak and I say, everything that Clown told me came true for this band. And he pushed me to do things that I never would have done. I never thought would have sold. I mean, just the jumpsuits. So yeah. Music Land, which used to be one of the biggest music chains in the U.S., mm -hmm. I sold them an orange jumpsuit that wholesaled for $50.00 retail for a hundred dollars and everybody said you can't do that they will never pay that kind of money they sold so many of them we ran out of orange jumpsuits and had to change colors because we were competing with the u.s prison system over blank orange jumpsuits and we had to start make we bought everything carhartt had and and, and every other brand that was making them but everything clown told me came true from Halloween, we did Halloween mass for them. We did, I mean, so many items that we never did for anybody else that was really, really innovative because the volume was there for them. Mm -hmm. You know, the volume became huge. It, and we had signed them to like a very small advance. I mean, they kind of fought me tooth and nail on doing the merge deal. I remember the merge deal wasn't signed until like Ozfest itself, like first day Ozfest is when we finally signed it, even though we were supplying them product. Um, and then I ended up paying them, you know, millions of dollars in royalties. Um, I mean, it, it was huge. Mm. 
Nickelback, on the other hand, it, it was really kind of a strange phenomenon. So Ron and I were part of this like music industry beach house in Montauk. And that whole summer of, I guess, 2002, he was playing the Nickelback record. And up until that point, until how you remind me, there was no indication that this band was going to come an arena or stadium band. Mm. You know, before that, they were, you know, nice Canadian guys, you know, starters Metallica cover band, right? It was like, there was no, and, and, and Ron kept selling me on, he's like, this is going to be huge. And I went to see them play and this started like a whole, um, theme of me going to see them in these like god-awful places that nobody from the label or anybody else would go to mm. so i went to see them in a place called greenville south carolina now the famous one is greenville north carolina which isn't so great so this is 2001 actually i'm sorry because it was right after 9 11 and i remember that because I flew into the Greenville, South Carolina airport on this little puddle jumper plane that held like six people. And I got strip searched at the airport <laughs> because it was like a month after 9-11. And I was completely like the <laughs> New Yorker being like, I live in fucking New York. I just lived through 9-11. And, and, and you fucking guys said, what do you think? I remember saying to them, which really pissed them off, which I think led to the skip search. I said, what do you think is going to happen out here? Somebody's going to hijack a plane and fly it into a cow. And <laughs> they, they didn't like that. So Nickelback was playing in the middle of a cornfield that they had carved out for this outdoor festival that had like, I don't know, 50,000 people. And they were headlining. And I go to see them there. And I watched, they, they played How You Remind Me. And the crowd went wild. Mm -hmm. And there was like, the girls were singing every word of the song. And, and you know, I've been around the business long enough to know. It's like, fuck, you know, there's something going on here. This is like, I don't know what happened with these guys, but this is really different. And I remember sitting with them, like the nicest restaurant in town was like, like an Olive Garden chain restaurant, which is, you know, horrible. You know, horrible. It was like you you would never go to one if you could help it. Mm -hmm. And I remember they wanted wine, and like the best wine they had was like I don't know, like a five dollar bottle. I mean, it was just, it was just <laughs> terrible. They eventually, you know, Mike Kroger will tell you he eventually became quite a a, a wine expert in all of this. But back then, you know, we were drinking five dollar wine at the Olive Garden in. Greenville, South Carolina. And we talked about merchandise and I explained to them what Blue Grape did for all the other bands. And, you know, Mike, who was sort of the businessman, he said, well, you know, you've never had a band like us. You know, you do, you know, you do all these like metal bands. And I said, yeah, but you know what? We built the company. I said, we just, you know, you asked earlier about I said, we just did the new James Bond movie merchandise. That's about as mainstream as you can get. Because after we did all the horror merchandise, we started doing 
like more mainstream movies because I had developed relationships with the studios. So we did like Species 2. And um, I, I forget all the different. We did a lot of stuff with Paramount, a lot of stuff with New Line Cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, I said to Mike, look, you know, we have a network. We have a team of people. We have a professional touring department. We have a retail distribution network. We're, you know, we're doing stuff on the internet now with, with e-commerce. We have a licensing division that licenses out products we don't produce ourselves, like posters and keychains and wallets and Halloween costumes. And all. I said, you know, we can do this. And, you know, I'm sure Case, you know, put probably put a little pressure as well, mm-hmm. but we did the deal. And from the onset, they sold really, really well. And they very quickly moved into arenas. Yeah. And so we had them. We had we had Slipknot and Nickelback all going in arenas. And then we signed Ramstein, and they were doing like arenas and clubs. And then I signed System of a Down. Mm-hmm. which was a non-roadrunner band, but it fit in perfectly. And, and Mudvayne at, at the recommendation of Sean from Slipknot. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, you know, we had a lot of bands that were playing much bigger places. Um, and I remember that that one tour in 2001, we had we had all four bands. It was Slipknot, Mudvayne, System of a Down, and Ramstein, all on the same tour. And we had all of them. Mm-hmm. And I remember... Years later, um, we did a bravado retreat, an A&R retreat to Barbados. And Peter Lubin and Tom Donnell, who ran Giant, who used to, who had been my competitor, we were all now working together. And they were trying to sign Slipknot and Mudvayne. And they said, like, I don't understand how you did it with the resources that you had versus, you know, we had Warner behind us. And I said, and that's exactly what I used against you guys. I would go to bands like Nickelback and say, look, you know, yeah, maybe you could get more money up front from a company like Giant or Brockham, but you'll be one of 200 bands on their roster. I said, you sign with us, you'll be number one. Mm. And it was true. And for a lot of them, and I said, look, you're going to earn, especially on your touring, you're going to earn exactly the same amount of money regardless of who you're with. You're going to sell the same amount of merchandise. You know, it's uh, it's just a question of, you know, do you have to have it all up front or, or can you have some of it up front? But mm-hmm. do you want to be a pro- the number one priority? And, and, and Ken knows this too. You could get us on the phone 24-7. Yeah. And they did. You know, it's like, God. I mean, you know, if, if there was something went wrong, if if somebody ran out of the, the smallest size of the least selling shirt and they're in a different time zone, they were picking up the phone and calling. <laughs> and, and I always answered. I know you did, too. And most of us yeah. did because that's, you know, that's what we did. But Kenny, you weren't on the road at this point, were you? You were in the office now. Well, yeah. So latterly, you know what I mean? So early on, it was all road stuff. And then latterly, in Europe, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you were in the office. But yeah, if there was, a, I mean, you know. A, a Ken was an executive at that point. 
<laughs> As Felix says, you know what I mean? But you're all in, you know what I mean? You feel like, you know what I mean? It's like, so if somebody wants to fucking phone you with a fucking problem, you, you feel like they can phone you with a problem. You know what I mean? And you, you'll answer, you know what I mean? But it, it was like, you're bought into this thing. And that, that was, yeah. I guess, the thing where we, we, I, at the beginning, it was like, you know, yeah, 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 you know, it's like, this feels like something different. And it's like, it's like meeting people like Felix, that it's obvious with them, you know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's, just, it's what we do, you know. Yeah, was, it wasn't your job, it, it was your life. Yeah, exactly. It's a life. It's like, okay, this is it. This is what we do. You know what I mean? So we'll we'll go go on and fucking do it. You know. And and look, you know, there 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 are times where you paid certain prices for it, just like people, you know, in in other types of jobs where it's it's all consuming as well. It definitely affects. You know, you know, it ruined a lot of personal relationships because. You're working long hours and you're traveling a lot. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, you know, look, I've had it for 23 years, uh, you know, starting at the Blue Grape days, I've done the Trans-Siberian Orchestra Tour, which oh. goes November 15th to December 30th. So that means when the rest of the music business is off yeah. the last the year, <laughs> I still got to stick around and work. Yeah. You know? Which I'm still doing, you know. Yeah. Is luckily it ends Thursday, so I got two more days left of it, or one more day tomorrow. Sure, hey. but it, it means that when everybody else is having fun holiday time, the last two weeks of the year, I got to be around, you know. And but but that's what we bought into, uh. and and really at the end of the day, I mean, look, that's what made it special for the bands as well, because the bands knew that they knew they could find Monty. They could call him any time. Mm. And I mean, look, what was funny with, with both, uh, you know, Slipknot and Nickelback, I believe at one point, you know, Slipknot, like, you know, banned Monty from the recording studio when they were recording. I'm pretty sure on that. But the one that I know for a fact is Nickelback absolutely banned Ron from the recording studio. And they're like, Ron, we love you. But you can't be in the studio with us when, <laughs> when we're doing this. And and look, you know, what what I think is interesting, you know, in Nickelback's case, look, they take a lot of heat, especially in the UK. I mean, there are so many people who quote unquote hate them, mm-hmm. yet, you know, they've sold 50 to 100 million records. You know, I forget the exact number at, at this point. Somebody's buying those records, and yeah. we sold them. Fuckload of merchandise. Oh, yeah. I don't know, you know, I've never seen anybody wearing one, but I know somebody bought them. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and maybe it's because they're Canadian, but, you know, they are some of the nicest guys oh. I've ever worked with. You know, whenever I see them, it, it's always hugs. They, they buy you dinner. I mean, they, mm. they, they couldn't be any nicer and, and more gracious for the success they've achieved. And like I said, so I would go see them in Red Deal, Alberta in the middle of January when it's 
like minus 31 degrees centigrade <laughs> or I'd go up to, you know, like Port Ritchie, uh, British Columbia. I'd go to, you know, like all, you know, Green Bay, Wisconsin or all these like God awful, yeah, sorry, yeah. all these God awful places <laughs> because I knew that I was never going to get FaceTime with them if I went to New York or Los Angeles because the label and especially when Island Def Jam got involved and Lee Cohen got involved, I was never going to get any time with them. But if I went to, you know, Red Deer, Alberta, it was just me. Yeah. And, and I think they really appreciated that, you know, it's uh, that because nobody, else wanted to go i mean and getting to those places was not easy no. especially in winter in canada and and they were like you know there's there's no four or five star hotels to stay in when you know when you're in hannah alberta you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but it but it created a bond and a relationship and uh you know it's, it's real though you know i mean that's what it is yeah and you know look I, i'm hoping you know I talked to them recently, and, I, and I'm, I'm hoping I get to work with them in the future, and, and I, I might, you know, it's a, I'd love to work with them again because they're going to go yeah, back out on the road in 2022. But, but it, the sheer volume that they did, you know, and, and along with Slipknot, compared to the rest of the roster, you know. It, it was a step apart. I mean, yeah, fucking hell, man. There, there was those were different like things. Yeah, things, like, I yeah. mean, I rarely like you know like lost my temper with, with the staff, but I remember losing it once with, with Slipknot with the retail department because Slipknot was so huge at retail. I mean, every retailer, and you know. Uta Linhard, who, you know, worked with her for, you know, 20 years, who I'm still friends with and, and work with today. Um, lovely woman. I brought her over in 98 because I needed someone who was fluent in English and German to work with Rammstein. Um, and to Europe for that, you know, and you were like, I'm going to, like, we were at, was it not in Italy or something like that? Yeah, I was in Berlin. You were there. We were there. It's when you, yeah, you were really sick. I remember. Yeah, we went to hell. You know. I mean? Yeah, we went to Milan. Yeah, was it that? We, we were on. What yeah. I remember about that trip I'm is like, it I was so fucking home here, yeah, mate. You know, what I mean, that was was May of May of ninety eight. she? Yeah, we flew from. What for? She worked for like was she an EMP or something like that? She was working for Nuclear Blast at oh, the time. Blast, right? So that and, was eating. I was like, I am fucking hell. I need to, you know, I didn't really you, you were like dead. I don't even know if you left the hotel. And, uh, and, uh, oh, so I didn't want to go on the trip, but you made me leave Amsterdam. And we went there. No, and we I, were on one of the last flights. <laughs> <laughs> but you remember that? That was a smoking flight on Air Italia, the Italian <laughs> Airlines, where the last time. I tell kids about this. I said the last 10 rows of the flight was smoking. They're like, what do you mean? It's a tube. I was like, yes, I know it's a tube. I said, but back then you could smoke in the last 10 rows. I was like, I mean, it's like, didn't anybody care about secondhand smoke? I was like, no. Yeah. 
So, so we get to Milan. I didn't smoke that flight, which was unusual for me. <laughs> you know, yeah, but I mean, you, you had like 103 fever. I mean, you were like dead warmed over. It was fucking terrible. You know what I mean? So it was a, yeah, a three-day festival. I think we had Colt Chamber on it, and uh, Black Sabbath was the headliner. I mean, it was there, you know what I mean? And it was like, that's why we went. You know, it was yeah. like, I was like, I'm dying. No, you gotta come. I've come from the States. Mm-hmm. You know, over there. Got there. I think I was there for about like fucking five minutes. I was like, okay, I'm leaving now. You know what I mean? Like, That's yeah. Uta. Hello, Uta. Bye. You know what I mean? And anyway, yeah. that was the story. Because Uta's fucking been with Blue Grape for yeah, like the whole yeah, the Felix Yeah, Felix, who ran EMP, the big metal mail order company in Germany. He introduced me to her because I said to him, Felix, you know, I, he and I were very good friends. I said, I need somebody. I just signed Ramstein. They don't speak any English yet. I need somebody who's fluent in German and English and understands the business. And he said, I'm the perfect person for you. She works at Nuclear Blast. Her name is Uta Linhard. She's the, the blonde woman over there. And I remember saying to him kind of you know, obnoxiously, I said, what do you mean that groupie chick over there? And he's like, oh, no, she is no groupie. I was like, how do you know that? He said, so she is not a groupie. And I, I said, Felix, with with all due respect, and you know I love you, but oh no, that is impossible. Uh, but I met her. And, and we went out for drinks that night and I found that her English was flawless. You would couldn't even guess that she was German. And she said, well, I lived in Long Island, New York for a while. I've got a lot of friends in America. And I said, well, would you consider coming to work for me? So she did. And, um, and she was great. So she was my head product manager. And she was product managing Slipknot. But she didn't realize how big they had gotten. And I took a look at, like, you know, the retail presentation. And there was, like, a half a dozen designs and, and I and I lost my shit and I'm like are you out of your fucking mind I said do you understand how big this band is I want to see 50 designs I don't want to see six and you know we we got 50 and we sold we, we couldn't sell them quick enough oh, and it got to the point you know early on I talked about how we had these independent sales reps that mm-hmm. would actually write the orders for us so Slipknot was selling everywhere, every major music, Musicland, Camelot, Warehouse, Tower Records, all these huge music chains that no longer exist anymore. And I would get orders, you know, again, faxed over from these sales (laughs) reps, and they would just have Slipknot on it. And being the, the capitalist that I am, I learned very early on in the process is that when you have a home run like this, you leverage it. You leverage the rest of the roster against it. And I went back to the sales reps and I said, look, I don't need you to sell Slipknot for me. You know, a chimpanzee could sell Slipknot. It sells itself. I need you to sell the rest of the roster. So any order that comes in that only has Slipknot in it, I'm not paying you a commission. And they all like freaked out. Like, what you can't do that. I said, watch me. I said, you better start selling the rest of the blue grape roster as well. And they did. Mm-hmm. And so 
Slipknot was really the leader that really helped take the retail distribution to this whole other level. Where now I sold Slipknot into J.C. Penney's, the department store. And I remember going to Dallas, going to a meeting with our sales staff there. And you know, you could imagine that a J.C. Penney's where the main buyer is the is the mother. It's not the kid. You're not getting like 15-year-old kids that go into Hot Topic buying a J.C. Penney's. You're getting their mom going in there being like, oh, yeah, Billy likes Slipknot. I should buy him this shirt. So selling the buyer on that mm. was, was, was not easy. But, you know, at that point, Slipknot was getting so huge. Yeah. You know, we went into, you know, everywhere from Target to Kohl's to Walmart to Penny's. I mean, it was everywhere. Mm. You know, the, the problem ran into when that cycle ended, the whole world knew how big it was. Yeah. And it, it was impossible to keep them when the cycle came to an end because all of my competitors were there with these huge checkbooks. <laughs> and, you know, we were, you know, they got offered, I think, like, Five million dollars or more by Winterland, and you know, we were just not. That wasn't our model to compete. Mm. You know, a million dollars, yeah, maybe yeah. even two million if it was a stretch. You know, but but we were not in that. The five <laughs> ten million. Yeah. yeah. So, so how long? So you signed Slipknot. Obviously, are you saying? Slipknot dropped off after after a while because you couldn't compete with the biggest. We were able to them for like three years, 98, 99, 2000, well, into 2001. And, and then um, when, when the contract was up at that point, unfortunately, you know, everybody understood their value at that point. Right. And, you know, that happened on a few occasions to us, which, which ultimately you know, is what ended up resulting in the sale to Sanctuary is that... Um, let, let, let's just pull back a little bit. That's, so let, let's yeah. use, use Slipknot as an example here. So when Slipknot say, uh, you know, cheers, Felix, but you're offering us 2 million or whatever, and Winterland's offering us 5 million. Is is Doug picking up the phone then with Clown and saying, what the fuck are you playing at? Because he obviously... Yeah, I, I, I obviously, did, oh, of course. Everyone oh, wants to keep yeah. it in house, right? Everyone wants it in house, even though Blue Break technically isn't in house. It's under the case banner right. of things. Well, look, you know, I mean, you know, I picked up the phone, Case picked up the phone, Monty picked up the phone. But look, you know, it, it's very hard to argue with someone when it's, you know, five million is yeah. is a lot of money. And, and and at the end of the day, I finally said to Clown, I said, look. We'll always be, you know, if Clown finally said to me, what would you do if you were me? And I, and I said, look, Sean, you and I will always be friends. I said, if it was me, you know, I've got a wife and kids, you know, I would take the $5 million and I'd send me a nice bottle of champagne with a note that said, thanks. You know, <laughs> because look, you know, I'm a realist, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, Capitalist. It's this, and it's a lot of money. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's a. I've been in this situation 
before with, with you know other bands where you know you, you get outbid and sure. you know you can make all the arguments you want about well, we're going to give you better service and, and and then the argument comes up and say oh yeah but are you going to give us three million dollars worth of better service yeah, you know? if you're realistic you know the answer probably is no and you know th- there was a point where you know roadrunner was going through an interesting period at that point where it's you know case had sold part of the business to universal at that point mm-hmm. and i don't know if he was looking at an exit strategy but then um you know when angelique got sick and, and ultimately passed away she was a big driving force between you know behind the merchandising entity mm-hmm. and i think those combination of factors you know it's uh you know, I think on the merchandising side, he was always a record man. Records and publishing were always his business. Merchandising, I think, was something that he got into because he realized that it was going to be an additional income stream. But I don't think he realized, you know, early on that we were going to turn it into a real business. And a real business requires banking and funding. Um, and I think that, you know, his heart was always in the record side of it. He's a record man. It seems like the, the merchandising arm, he had a confidant in, in which he could rely on to administrate it appropriately. And without that, without that key component, it isn't, it isn't dead weight, but perhaps it wasn't going to be led in the right way. Oh, it wasn't going to be read with the same vigor with an Angelique. no, I wouldn't quite say it at that because at that point, Angelique had kind of she had retired. Oh, okay, all right, fair and, and you know, but but she still had his ear, and, and he was never going to sell it while she was alive, because mm-hmm. she would have object. You know, she still was a fifty percent shareholder, and, and would have you know really objected to it. Yeah, um, sure. You know, I, I think that there was only so much cash to be spent. And once Blue Grape entered the big leagues, because that's what, you know, Slipknot and Nickelback really helped us do is that oh. it, it put us into, into the majors as opposed to, let's say, you know, the, you know, the, the second division. Now we were first division and we wanted to keep growing it. You know, like I remember we put it in offer for Christine Aguilera. And I think it was like $1.5 million. And when he agreed to the advance, I mean, his hand was shaking. <laughs> he was like, he was like, she, it was right when Genie in a Bottle came out. And this was a genre that he knew nothing about. It was pop. And he was really he was like, you better be right about this. You know, this is, this is your job. If you're wrong. I was like, I was like, no, I'm right about this. She's going to be huge. And then, Ultimately, um, you know, we put out a, a press release saying we were going to be signing Christine Aguilera and Bravado ended up like tripling our offer. Right. Oh. And, I, and, and we ultimately ended up not signing it. And I think the, the look of relief on Case's face, <laughs> you know, so you know, at, at the end of the day, it was like, 
He was having to spend more to sign bands to the label. He was having to give them separate publishing advances now. Mm-hmm. And, and then the merchandising company was going outside of the Roadrunner family, signing pop acts that required big advances. I think it was just got to be too much. And that wasn't the model that he really wanted anymore. He, he, uh, it seems like from what I'm learning about Roadrunner so far, he likes lean and mean. And with yes. the merch company, there's lean and mean, but it's scaled up. It's, the overheads are massive and the money's massive. So yeah, can, I mean, we yeah. built up overhead a lot. We had, you know, we built up the staff. We built up the warehousing. We got bigger warehousing. Um, we were talking about possibly even investing in our own screen printing presses, uh, which is something Angelique always had wanted to do. Mm. She wanted to be able to control the production. Um, And that, you know, he never wanted to ever own any manufacturing. That's something I think that he also learned from Lior Cohen, um, because I know that from when I ended up, you know, working for Universal and Bravado, you know, years after that, that was the one thing that they did not want us to do is to ever own any manufacturing materials at all. You know, the label didn't own own pressing plants, you know, is because, you know, it's it's a money pit in in their opinion. Um, So, you know, so, I mean, I think ultimately at that point, and then once Angelique had passed, you know, he, he came to me and he basically said, um, you know, I've been advised that it would be a good time to sell the merchandising company off. And, and I, was, I was shocked. You know, and he, uh, he actually, he had offered, he said, why don't you try to put together the funding to buy it? And, I forget the price that he wanted at the time, but it, it was fairly steep. And I went to all the bankers in New York and in LA, and they all basically came back with the same response, which was as a standalone entity, merchandise company is risky. As a part of a larger, either a record label, or, or a publisher or a promoter somewhere that can basically filter acts into you, mm. it might make sense. But as an independent standalone company where you're basically fending for yourself out in the world, and this was when the labels were just starting to do these 360 deals, they're like, it's too risky an investment. Yeah. So, so I remember going around to all our competitors at the time. And Brockham had just gone bankrupt. So they were gone. I remember going to Peter Lubin and having lunch at the Ivy in Los Angeles. And he said, well, he's a very sardonic, sarcastic guy. And he's like, well, you guys aren't worth anything. I could just wait till the contracts expire and, and just sign the bands away. So why do I need to buy it? <laughs> and then I remember... Uh, I ended up that same trip. I had breakfast with Barry Drinkwater and Tom Bennett in Los Angeles at the Sunset Marquee. And Sanctuary had bought Barry's company, Bravado, like two years earlier. 
I think I just were in the process of buying Tom's company, World Online. And I said, why don't you buy us? And Barry's like, why don't you quit? Come work for me and we'll just steal all the bands. <laughs> and I said, because I have some integrity, Barry. We laugh about this now because I work for Barry today. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's ironic. Um, but it took a year of very up and down negotiations that looked like they were going down the toilet most of the time. Um, and Case had this business manager that was also Ozzy's business manager, Colin Newman, who had sold his company at a regular label, Trojan Records, right. that he had sold to Sanctuary. So he was very familiar with the whole Sanctuary family. And he kind of led the negotiations. And it was like this really up and down roller coaster where until the very end, I didn't think it was going to happen. You know, it was like, because Case was asking too much. They were offering too little. The negotiations seemed like worlds apart. They broke down at various points. Um, so I just assumed, well, it's just, you know, just not going to happen. We're just going to keep on keeping on the way we've been going. Um, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, I got a call. It was, uh, I think it was December 17th of 2014. And it was like, the deal's done. So on December 17th, everybody was a Blue Grape employee. On December 18th, they were sanctuary employees. Mm. It, was, it was strange. It was very, uh, it was a strange transition. It was, you know, it's really the, the end of an era. Yeah. Is it, so was it only sold one? Was it only the one time it got sold then? As it yeah. Happened? All right. So Blue Grape was arm in arm with Roadrunner, right even past Roadrunner being bought out by Warner. Right. So basically the Warner, so basically um, first Roadrunner, 50% of Roadrunner was sold to Universal. 2001, yeah. Right. Did. But they didn't buy any of Blue Grape. Right. Interesting. There was, okay. There was, I was a little jealous and angry, but it was a little bit like a slap. But I mean, they had zero interest in being involved in merchandising, which is interesting because, you know, in 2007, Universal bought Sanctuary. And one of the main reasons was for Bravado. Um, But this was pre-Lucian Grange. I mean, Lucian really is one who engineered the merch buy. Yeah. This was, you know, before he was involved. Um, so, yeah, when Leo bought it, he just wanted the label. And and I believe, I'm not even sure if the publishing was part of it. It might have. Publishing was sold off to BMG. Right. So I think, so, I think. No, I think you're right. Um, but but I, my understanding of it, and I wasn't really privy to that deal, was that 50% of the label, and then within three years, Case had to either buy the other 50% back or sell the other 50% to Island Def Jam. And then Lior had gotten let go by Universal yeah. and moved to Warner's. So he basically partnered with Case when that three years was up to basically buy the label, you yeah. know, locks in barrel over to Warner's. But at that point, you know, 
I guess Blue Vape had already been sold, I think, when that happened. So, you know, there, there was no other option. Yeah, I mean, Blue Grape and the name was sold to Sanctuary and then ultimately Sanctuary sold to Universal. It'd be interesting to see who actually owns the name. Hmm. Is it Sanctuary or is it Universal? Who actually owns the rights to the name Blue Grape? Yeah. You know, like, uh, Marcus Turner probably, uh, you know, would know the answer to that. But... But it really it was the end of an era, you know. I mean, that, that was it at the end of 2004. Yeah. So, so really, it was you know late 80s through 2004, and then yeah, yeah, and then it was done, and everybody, you know, we all just sort of moved on, you know, to other things, and it was you know, it was never the same. No. You know, I, I mean, my my first, you know experience in bravado is that they didn't want to re-sign a lot of my blue grape bands like machine head like sepulchre like cold chamber um it just wasn't big enough you know mm. for their model at the time um so hang on, who 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 were you sold to in 2004 so the sanctuary right okay i, I thought that was 2014 okay no no 2004 okay fine understood <laughs> Yeah, so Blue Grape, the Blue Grape era comes to an end at the end of 2004. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It seems weird, considering the timeline of Roadrunner stretches to like 2012, it feels like really right. well, they, premature. You they know? kept going, but I guess, you know, it's, um, you know, my involvement with them became less and less. Yeah. And I never really, you know, I still have friends, obviously, that were working there, but one by one, you know, they got let go by Atlantic. And yeah. it was always, you know, I would, you know, make comments to, you know, I'd run into Dave Rath at shows, you know, if we had bands in common. I mean, one, one of the first things I did at Bravado in Sanctuary was I re-signed Slipknot. So I got Slipknot back, <laughs> you know, from a, their disastrous experience at Winterland. So I would run into, you know, you know, I forget what it was. It, it was, you know, it was a lot. Yeah. But um we, you know, but I would end up running into the Roadrunner people at the shows. And, and you know, I would ask him, like, are you still Roadrunner? And they'd be, oh yes, we're still Roadrunner. I'd say, Well, it's not what I hear, you know, what I hear out in the market is that you're really just sort of like a shell. And you know, you got like three or four people is like, no, that's not true. So I kind of lost touch with, with a, a lot of what happened in those last eight years. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I know, I mean, the last time I saw Dave Rath, I think it was at least two years ago. Um, so I was doing Corey Taylor's solo stuff. Right. And, and then I was doing Stone Sour. And, I ran into him in the Stone Sour show down at like House of Blues in Anaheim. And that might have been, that was either December 2019 or December 2018. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, then I want to say I was on a Zoom call with him during the pandemic. I forget exactly why. But we were all on a Zoom together. Um, 
you know, and yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of sad in a way, you know, that the label couldn't have just kept going. But, you know, it's like all good things have to come to an end, right? Yeah. I mean, we reflect on it in many different ways, especially in regards to the documentary. I'm like, how do I, how do I frame this? Because it, it appears like the, the big bad, the big bad mage is eating it all up. But really, when you speak to people on a personal level, like, oh, no, everyone was pretty, pretty fucking great during the whole process. They kind of left Roadrunner to do Roadrunner things. Um, obviously, when it came to letting people go, it, everything started souring up a little bit more. But obviously, people understand that it is a business that is congruent with that kind of activity, especially when it comes to turnovers. So it's it's difficult to frame it appropriately at this point. Yeah, but I, look, I mean, you know, being a little bit of an outsider slash insider to all of it, my personal take, and this is purely my personal take, was that it was clearly a big major label gobbling up a successful indie and then destroying it. I mean, basically destroying everything that was that made it special. We've seen this movie so many times. It, mm-hmm. It's cliche, you know, at this point. You know, they want the turnover and they're like, but they don't want the overhead. So let's get rid of the people. But their people didn't grow up in that culture and can't really service the act the same way. Because they're not part of that culture. Yeah. So it just it goes to shit, you know. It's uh yeah. That was always sort of my view on it. And uh, you know, some of the, the the people that were there that were part of it, you know, disagreed with me on it. And I always said to them, Well, you know, you're in denial because you know, you need the major to pay your salary. So, yeah. you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna say, Yeah, they fucked it all up. You know, you'd be out in the street. Holding a tin can, you know, it's, uh, but, you know, I mean, our business was always, you know, sort of a simpler business, you know, it's, uh, which, which I think, you know, in a lot of ways that made the merchandising business a little more desirable in a lot of ways is that there was much less of that politics going on. There was much less of, you know, bigger merchandising companies like gobbling up smaller merchandising companies. You know, in, in the case of, uh, you know, Blue Grape and, and Sanctuary, we almost had to like beg them to buy us. Like, please buy us. Please buy us. Please buy us. We're tiny. Because they were in, because they were in indie. You know, that, that was the nice thing about Sanctuary. And you had Andy Taylor and Rod Smallwood and Mercury Curiosity. You had, all of the, um, you know, Iron Maiden people, and they they were an indie who at least tried to preserve, you know, some some of you know what Blue Grape was about. They didn't fully succeed, mm. you know, because there were certain bands that, you know, I would have wanted to keep, you know, and there were people I wanted to keep, and and you know, they're basically like no. You know, this this isn't how we now operate. And 
you know, and it was kind of sad, but, but they at least were still in India. I mean, I, when Sanctuary was going bankrupt and got bought by Universal, that's when it all went to shit. (laughs) You know, it was like, because that's when I could see really in black and white, um, it was a huge, huge difference. And that's when I really started appreciating what we had at Blue Gray. Sure. It was, uh, you know, once Universal was signing my paychecks, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was like, wow, this is very, very different environment. It's very corporate. Um, you know, at Blue Grape, you know, you just have to go to Case and be like, hey, Case, you know, this band would be a great addition to our roster. I think they're going to do really well for us. We should sign them. And and he was, you know, he was the money. So that's where it stopped. Once you get into a corporate environment and that with corporate bean counters, you know, it was like analysis after analysis, spreadsheet after spreadsheet. And by the time you got done with everything, the band had signed with somebody else. Oh. <laughs> At the time. Or, you know, they put out another record and exploded in another record, but it was fucking shit, you know what I mean? Or, uh, that was the one before we won it, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, no, I mean, you know, so I think that you know it, it was a special time and, and it was a really great group of people that just kind of lived, they lived it. Mm. And, and I think in any business you find that's what makes the business successful. You can ask like any entrepreneurs, you know. I mean, the one thing Case always said to me, and he said this about Doug as well, is that you know we ran his business like it was our own, yeah, and we spent his money like it was our money. And you know, I think he was lucky to have group of people because there are a lot of us that, that behaved like that mm-hmm. um i don't know if that happens that much anymore you know yeah yeah i really don't you know it's uh yeah i, I think what i guess my closing my closing question is then what am i missing i'm trying to map this out and because obviously merchandising is one of the four pillars of a revenue stream for uh, for music, especially right. in, in Roadrunner's case. Are there any any is there anything I'm missing from an, either a uh, infrastructure point of view, or are there any just good stories I'm I'm? <laughs> well, yeah, we 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 could sit around having pints and telling stories for days. <laughs> this is the longest one of these I've done now, by the way. <laughs> yeah, good. good. Yeah, Hopefully- yeah, I'm, I'm, but. And hopefully the best one. Oh, of course. <laughs> well, Ste- Stefan tried to tell me that his was the best. <laughs> and, and then I heard somebody said that you had said that the interview with Ron Berman was the best. It's, it's it, that Ron's one was really good. I like the one with Ron. But it's not good. It hadn't come out yet, that one. I'll tell you a funny story about Ron, but again, it's got to be off the record. So, yeah. <laughs> You know, he was sort of like the odd duck out within the Roadrunner world because he wasn't a metal guy. No. And even though, let's say, you know, Howie Abrams wasn't really was a metal guy. 
He was hardcore. He was a hardcore guy, but you know, a lot of those hardcore bands, especially Agnostic Front, you listen to some of those in effect records, and it's like it's indistinguishable from metal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so so how are we, you know, at least close to it. I mean, uh Jeff Packman, you know, he never was gonna really fit in there. So he didn't I think I think it wouldn't I, I agree with you, but I also think without Pac-Man, you wouldn't have had Nickelback. Right. Well, without Pac-Man, you wouldn't have had Ron. Exactly. You know? Exactly. But, but and then you had Mike Gitter, who you know, I just saw Mike at uh, at the Mastodon show out here two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's like, no, no, no. But it's, I'm hearing all these. It's like Mike Gitter and then the Mastodon. It's like wow. It's just like it is totally. Like, you know, like memory lane, man, you know, I mean, it's mental, you know? Yeah, come to L.A., Ken, you'd love it. Yeah, 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 exactly, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's like a whole metal resurgence out here, you know? It's a, oh, I know. see Dino at the Rainbow all the time. Brilliant, man, brilliant. But at that point, you know, they wanted Monty wow. to really, I mean, they wanted Monty to really do what Dave Rath ended up doing, and Monty turned it down. He basically said no. You know, they wanted him to basically run the department and be an administrator. And, and he told Case and Jonas, no, that's not what I do, which is how Dave Rath got hired. Wow. You know, they needed somebody to, quote, unquote, be the adult, you know, <laughs> and, and who, could, who, could say, who could keep things in budget and say no. And that was not what Monty wanted to do. Monty wanted to just sign bands. Oh. It was a period in Argonne. So when Ron came along, you know, and I, I agree with you, if there, if there had been no Pac-Man, there probably had been no Ron. I mean, he was still sort of like this odd duck in this company. And, you know, some of the other stuff, I, I can't even remember some of the other bands that he signed up. I think, I, think I, I, can, I can open this up by saying, like, I think Ron's impact eventually opened up the label you know, he wasn't. He was the odd duck for a time, but Blackstone yeah. Cherry, Airborne, Theory of a Dead Man. It's like eventually, that's what we, what made Roadrunner a AAA fucking company is the fact that they now had a AAA roster, and Ron was a well, big theory, part of that. I, mean, I remember because we had a merchandise theory, and you know, for us, they just didn't sell merchandise. They were, you know, they mm. they were. You know, I mean, I think Nickelback was the one who. Um, Chad, who brought them over to the label, yeah, they were supposed to be like the next Nickelback, and you know, even though they sold some records from a merchandising perspective, they just never evolved into that. We just could never really sell, yeah. you know, and, and and that was sort of you know, that was sort of the difference between the metal bands. And the, those AAA radio bands, the metal bands always had a core base that would buy any piece of merchandise that you yeah. put their name and logo on. A lot of these radio bands, and I've worked with tons of them over the years, you know, they don't have a core base. So if they don't have a huge radio hit, yeah, you know, we're not going to sell merchandise. Mm. Mm. You know. I mean, what's interesting about uh, Nickelback is as much as they sold merchandise on tour, uh, they were not a big seller at retail, right, where okay. somebody like Slipknot 
and the metal bands. And to this day, I still get requests for a lot of the old Roadrunner metal bands at retail. There's still demand for it because that core audience and that base, they passed it on to their kids. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a re- really, it's a great core audience that'll buy anything. Um, but with a lot of the pop radio stuff, you know, it's, it's got to have a huge hit. Yeah. And, and then you can merchandise it. But without that, it, it's really hard. I mean. It I'm, just demonstrate the cultural impact that when you say like, Nickelback will do really well on tour, but not no, not really well at retail. And then Slipknot will do really well at retail. And presumably, just to extend your comment, they do well at tour as well. Tour as well. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but it's like you know, you're a 13 year old kid, and you're into Nickelback. You know, you're not going to wake up and be like, "Hey, I'm going to go to the mall today and buy a Nickelback shirt." You're going to be, you know, you're going to be at a concert. With a friend, it's an impulse buy, you know, and you may take that shirt and throw it in your drawer and never wear it. The Slipknot experience occurs on your own in a bedroom. That's the selling yeah. point of a Slipknot shirt. Look, I remember with Slipknot at their peak, we got a call. We were always getting calls from like TV shows and movies wanting to use merchandise as set dressing. Mm-hmm. And they'd always have to get our permission to sign off on it. And, you know, we'd always go back, you know, to the artist just to make sure. So the most memorable call I got was from the Sopranos and a show that, you know, I, I personally loved. Awesome. And yeah. And, and the, the kid, Robert Eiler, who played uh, Anthony Jr. Yeah. In his personal life, he was a huge Slipknot fan. And he convinced the directors that AJ's room should be covered in like Slipknot posters and memorabilia. So I sent them a huge package of posters, a Slipknot lunchbox. I remember one episode, AJ kept his marijuana stash in his Slipknot lunchbox. It was brilliant. Mm -hmm. And then I got to take him to OzFest to meet Slipknot. Which, which, which is a lot of fun. I mean, it was just a, you know, he was just a teenager who was like a huge fan yeah. who happened to play, you know, Tony Soprano's son on the show. But, right. but it was his, you know, he was a metal kid. It was a huge lifestyle. <laughs> We're now four hours and 11 minutes in, chaps. I'm going to, and there's, there's still like, I could still continue doing this, uh, but I've got shit to do tomorrow. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think what we should let's just do some closing remarks and then we can just shoot the shit about what I'm calling the next steps, which is my way of saying what I'm going to do next, which will be off record. So if you have closing remarks, Rhoda and a blue grape, the whole experience, what you in general, anything I might have missed in terms of like the point, I guess, because I've been sort of spouting out a lot of shit about it's about this enigmatic fucking Dutch dude who just led a group of fucking black t-shirt clad uh, teenagers into their 20s, who then led on another fucking cohort of the same kind of people to making metal what it ended up being, especially in the 2000s. But there could be components of that that I'm missing. So by all means, round this up for me. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Go ahead, Ken. 
yeah, well, no, I think um, well, I think I think you were right with the Dutch guy. You know, I mean, he uh, he had the, he had the right idea, and then um, but like as I I told you before, it it was an accident. You know, what I mean, but I think a lot of it was accidental, but got it, it hit the mark, and it was just because he knew where to hit the mark. You know, so um, my involvement might be accidental, Felix. They might like look at it and go, ah, well, yeah, it's him, but it, it maybe it's a wee bit of an accident. But it's there's a guy in the middle that like knows what the fuck is fucking going on, and he's managed to pull it together, you know, and and brought all of us in. Mm. So it's like uh, it's fucking well done, you know. What I mean, it's like it's fucking well done. You can't go wrong, you know. So um, yeah, that's good. So, without uh, offending any of my former Dutch colleagues too much, um, what I think made Case unique was that he was an atypical Dutchman. And what I mean by that is that, look, he certainly spent a lot of time in the United States and traveling around the world. So he was a very, you know, cultured, uh, worldly guy who wasn't limited, you know, to basically, you know, I, I think if, if you look at a lot of, you know, typical Dutchmen, I don't think he would have succeeded on the level that he did with this label. Mm. He realized the, the importance of being global very quickly. And, and he also understood, you know, the importance of, of the U.S. and U.K. marketplace, you know, for this business, which, you know, and look, you know, Japan's an important market. Australia's an important market. But, you know, if you don't have the U.S. and the U.K., none of that really matters. Mm. And I think, you know, that's why I call him an atypical Dutchman, because he was able to think, you know, outside of that box and I think look in any successful business especially this type of business you can't downplay luck you know anybody that you know the old adage you know would you rather be lucky or good well I'd rather be lucky you know and mm. and I think everybody would because you need some luck and you need some timing and I think the timing was right for him and I think that he got really lucky with a lot of the people that he brought in because he couldn't have done it by himself. Mm -hmm. You know, he engineered a lot of it. And obviously, you know, he financed a lot of it, but he had a lot of really, really great people to basically, you know, make the vision happen. And, you know, not the least being, you know, somebody like, you know, like Monty, you know, the, you know, I, I, um, I mean, Monty was instrumental in me getting the job and, and basically starting, you know, my non-playing days career off. You know, I, I owe it all to him and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, probably never told him that. And maybe if he, if he sees it, uh, I, I've given him a, 
I give him a pretty hard time every time I see him, but that's just because I love him. <laughs> I'll believe that out, mate. Don't worry about it. You know, but, uh, but, I, but I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I think that Case was able to kind of see outside the box that he was given. And, and, and I think timing, luck, got him a lot of really great people at a time when, you know, the business could support it. I don't know that you could do what he did, you know, in his business anymore. Because remember when he started, it was vinyl. Mm. Then he went through the whole CD boom. Yeah. And then the whole MP3 boom after that. And, you know, I think it'd be really, really difficult to recreate what he's done yeah. in the modern era. I think it had to be when he did it. Yeah. You know? I'd so. like to think I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. I think I have one more ingredient to throw into the um the mix. As 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 Ken said, it's like it's it's there's a guy in the middle orchestrating it all and there's there's the timing and the look, but I think one thing metalheads are really good at, really good at is we can sniff authentic inauthenticity from a fucking mile away. We can tell when someone doesn't really care and isn't really putting in 110%. And I think Case knew that from his experience working with rock bands in the 70s and the 60s. I think Monty knew that because he's a metalhead. Doug knows that because he's a smart guy. Fucking Michelle Kerr knows that because she's a metalhead. And all these people just sort of like know what inauthenticity means. And as a result of that, they're like, what's that? They're just repelled away from it. And what you end up with is just this like body of people who give a massive fuck. If you can herd a bunch of people that give a massive fuck about a thing, you're kind of like the most powerful guy in the room. I think that's about yeah, well, it. Look, I think you, you have to also add the you know the fans into the mix. It's agreement is that look, it was a genre of music at that time mm. that had a tremendously loyal fan base that, you know, would buy every release. I mean, they, you know, look, it was, you know, I've had people tell me this about Blue Grape, that they would look forward to those mail order inserts that we put into CDs because they would buy every Blue Grape new T-shirt that came out. And conversely, I mean, those fans knew that if it said Roadrunner or Road Racer, that they knew it was going to be metal. And it was going to be quality, and maybe they didn't know the band that well yet. Yeah. But they would, but they get to know that band, and they would know that it was going to be a great record. And those, you know, I, I recently um, had the opportunity to digitize some old cassettes that Mark Abramson had sent me, and Mark, you know, was the the main radio guy at Roadrunner yeah. all through the, the typo negative era. And he had um, a live record typo negative live at Lemoore's December, 1994, a show that all of us were at and he had it on cassette and he didn't have a cassette player. And I've got a recording studio in my home and I still have a great Tascam cassette deck so I can digitize cassettes and I'll, I'll do it for people from time to time. Mm. So I, I, I said, yeah, I'll digitize it for you. He said, oh, by the way, if if you have anything else on cassette you want uh, digitized, you know, by all means, send them. 
So, you know, if, if you, I don't know if you've interviewed Mark yet. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So if you know anything about Mark, Mark does everything in excess. And there's the old adage, no good deed goes unpunished. So I get this huge box with like all these cassettes. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, you know, Mark's nickname is Psycho, Mark Psycho Abramson. And I've known him since the 80s. So I can't call him Mark. I, I call him Psycho. Yeah, I, I've, only like, known, I've only known him for like a year. So I have to call him Mark. Yeah, you have to call loud. him Mark. <laughs> but I'm like, Psycho, what the fuck are you doing? It's like, I don't have time to digitize all these. But, you know, luckily, half of them, they're like ferrous iron on the tape was so disintegrated. I was like, these have to be destroyed. I will not put them in my Tascam deck. It will destroy the heads on my deck. So we got rid of half. And then there were some prizes in there. He had suffocation demos, malevolent creation demos, stuff that they had submitted to Monty when they were trying to get signed, the uh, accused, um, you know, and, and I'm not sure how he ended up with them. Probably Monty probably made him a copy of the cassette. Sure. He said, here, what do you... What do you think of this? Mm-hmm. Um, and he still had them. So I digitized all this stuff for him. And in the digitizing process, I re-listened to all of them. And some of those demos I hadn't listened to in, you know, 25 years. And, you know, you forget, like, you know, maybe the audio quality of those demos, because they did it on like a little four-track, you know, cassette recorder isn't that great. But, but the feeling and the emotion was there. Yeah, sure. it was like this is you know this is great great stuff. So I they're on my iPhone now, and I I put it on you know random shuffle when I'm driving out of here, and all of a sudden you know one of those demos will just come on, and I'll turn it up, and and, and as soon as I mean look I think there was, there was a lot of great music that came out of it. I mean if the music was you know don't, you don't want to underplay that either. I mean. If the music wasn't good, those records wouldn't have sold. Exactly. Oh, fucking hell. The thing is, though, that yeah. it, while I'm doing all this, I'm kind of ignoring the artists at the minute, even though they're the most important part. Yeah, and you, you know can't. I mean, I mean no, can't. If, if, you know, look, these were great. You know, Fear Factory, great band. Machine had great band. Sepultura, great band. Slipknot, you know, Nickelback. I mean, these were all great band. Typo Negative. I mean, look, Typo Negative went from Origin of the feces to the bloody kisses, and it was like, wow! I was, I remember when I, you know, when I took over the job, I had like we used to actually do all the mail order fulfillment out of the old blue grape offices mm. at two twenty five Lafayette, and the first office I had was was the mail order fulfillment. Uh, we had metal shelving everywhere filled with all the merchandise, and. Me, Joel Peskin, and Todd, a uh, friend who became the drummer in H2O, uh, who was our intern, we sat under the scaffolding with sometimes boxes falling on our heads, fulfilling out of the office till we moved to a slightly bigger space. But we had boxes and boxes of these green trucker hats with a black typo negative logo on it. <laughs> they, were, they were terrible. They were terrible hats. That, we couldn't move them. And they were sitting there. I mean, hundreds of them. And then Bloody Kisses came out. And I sold out of all of them. 
Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, and the funniest thing is, you know, and I was like, the notice in. So back when we were doing all the mail order out of the office, I had all the guys from H2O working for me. They were doing <laughs> mail order fulfillment. So not only did you have fans, you know, working on, on the business side of it, you had guys who were in bands who were fans of these bands actually working with us mm-hmm. doing a lot of the nuts and bolts shipping you know the guys that worked in the mail room they were all fans of these bands yeah people wanted to work at roadrunner i mean for some people you know it was their dream job you know i remember talking to this and they're like and, and they're like you know like what's your aspiration you know like this is it you know i I'm a huge metalhead. I wanted to work at Roadrunner. And now I finally do. Like, it can't get any better than this. And it's like, look, you know, you can't, can't buy that. No. No. That's what it was like in uh, uh, Roadrunner in uh, Europe as well, though, wasn't it? You know, because yeah. guys there were like yeah. metal fans, you know what I mean? And uh, if yeah, they were fans. the record company, <laughs> then, uh, you know, they might make it in the merch company. But everybody was like, a, it was like, it was, a, it was, a, it was back to the tribe. You know, it was like, yeah. it, tribe. like you know, you're metal, you're in, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, it's like, that's why Case kept certain people around. He was like, uh, this, yeah. Yeah, was like look, look, the truth is, I mean, the people that didn't buy into it didn't really last very long. Yeah. You know, it's, um, you know, they, they, I mean, there were people that came and went because for them, it, it was just a job. And, you know, what was interesting, I mean, there was one point where as things started getting more mainstream and the label was getting bigger, someone had put the idea in cases had that, you know, maybe some of the people running the different offices, um, you know, didn't have the level of experience. So he should bring in quote unquote professionals. And he did that for about a year. And in, in every case it, it failed and these people came and left. In like you know, 97, 98. Well, like Derek Schulman yeah. came in to run as president of Roadrunner in the US. And that, you know, that was just, you know, never going to work because he came from a completely different environment, coming from a very corporate environment. And uh, what was the guy that came into the UK? Jimmy uh, Devlin. Yeah, Jimmy Devlin. Nice guy. You know, lovely guy. Yeah. Made me eat haggis. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Not the first. <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> then, uh, who was the guy in Germany um, that came in? Uh, Lewis. Spillman. Um, yeah, Lewis Spielman. Yeah. And to the credit of each of the people, whether it was Mark Palmer or whether it was Doug and Jonas or, um, you know, Hank in Germany, they all kind of, you know, okay, you know, I'm going to put my ego aside because a lot of people would have quit, been like, you know, fuck you, I've been running this for you for all these years. And now you put someone in over me and, um, you know, and they didn't. They all wrote it out 
And ultimately, a year later, they were all back in charge running their respective companies. Because um, Case realized that, you know, it was a mistake. I mean, on on the blue grape side, who is the the guy Angelique brought in from the UK, Tim? Oh, uh, Tim Major. Yeah, Tim Major. Tim Major. Well, Tim Major was there just before I because I met like Tim right at the beginning. But it was like, it was confusing because it's like Tim Major's running this. And then when I came over, Tim was back in the UK. And then it was like, boom, he's gone. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I remember going on vacation. It's always when you went on vacation. I went on vacation. I came back and it's like, I get an email from Tim Major, who I knew from Acme, uh, who was our printers. And, and it's like, you know, managing director, Blue Grape VV. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and again it was the same thing where case felt like angelique needed somebody so she could be more the creative and he would be the business and it just you know yeah. he wasn't from this world so it didn't really work it what's funny is um ken you probably don't know this story so case was interested in having chris parks run america oh all right fucking hell wow Who's so Chris Parks? He's Chris Parks. Wow. Well, yeah, hell of a Chris Parks. And I like Chris. Chris and I get on great now. Yeah. I used to lounge, you know what I mean? I mean, the guy yeah. I worked with, he was involved with for years. And now he's like, he left them. and now He ran Plastic Head. He actually ran, yeah. he started MFL. Yeah, exactly. Who, That's who, who Ken works yeah. for now. Yes, yeah. it started it. So yeah. is, he, is he just like a big for the for the yes. for the youngins for the youngins <laughs> a veteran veteran merchandising guy. So I'm in London, and Case has dinner with me, and he's like, "I want you to go down to Surrey tomorrow." I was like, "Okay, why?" He said, "I want you to." Go. He said, "You know Chris Parks." I'm like, "Sure, I know Chris." Um, he said, "I want you to go have dinner with Chris." I'm thinking about uh, bringing him in as managing director worldwide for Blue Grape, and I want your opinion. <laughs> so now I'm like steaming inside, but, but I'm a good poker player, so I don't show my hand. So I go down there, and you know, Chris, you know, his, his wife had these horses on this lovely property in Surrey. It's one of the oldest pubs in England. We go to the pub, we have some pints, we have some dinner, we talk for, you know, three or four hours. And he's a lovely guy, you know. But I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, I should be the president of the company. Because at that point, <laughs> I think I was like a, a senior vice president <laughs> uh, of the U.S. And I'm like, if this guy comes in, that's going to knock me back further. So I'm not a letter writer. And I don't know if I have it anywhere, but I wrote a letter to Case, a very long letter. And Case hates long letters. He hates <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. It's all bullet points. Everything bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Doesn't have the patience for this. But I wrote a very long emotional letter saying how Chris was the wrong guy and that it should be me. Should be me. <laughs> and he came back to me and he said, I got your letter. Oh, 
I read your letter. It's a bit long. <laughs> he said, but um, he said, but I agree with everything you said. And I, I, I like fell back in my chair. I, I, I was shocked because I did not think that was going to be. I thought, you know, it was going to turn into like a piss match. Oh, fuck. Uh, so, um, but I think he learned, you know, especially on the label side, that the people that he had who were the ones who built it mm. were, the, were the right people. And, you know, bringing in these outside experts, you know, was... Exactly. Yeah. Was never going to work for a company. That's that's fascinating to me because I, I I've been obviously I've been researching this to to a, a, an egregious and offensive extent. So the with these people coming in, the Derek Shumlins and De- Jimmy Devlin's, my th- thoughts around it was, given that Case's experience in in the record industry at this point um, was as such, he just wanted someone of a sil- similar, not necessarily a similar caliber, but someone with major label credentials to yeah. come in and that was the idea right. but something you said there felix was that someone was in his ear saying these guys the mark palmers and doug Keos, were young dudes and they didn't have the experience that would uh, maximize the potential of the label but i also heard from another source saying this exercise while a great idea these guys derek, derek shulman and jimmy they couldn't penetrate